This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know what I want? <laughs> Not Samson, Greg. Not Samson. No, I want to Hey everybody, welcome to an episode of the Rapcast, Raptors Weekly Podcast slash whatever this is. It's always kind of up and down. We don't really know what we're going to be talking about on a day-to-day basis. This one in the, what is it, the dregs of the, the off-season, an interesting conversation today. Let me get out ahead of this. This is very insular. This borders on navel-gazing. I'm here with my friend Adam who I sit next to on Media Row to cover Raptors games. He covers a lot more than the Raptors, unlike myself. And we wanted to talk about, specifically Adam wanted to talk about with me, what media is like today. And so if you're just here for the basketball, um, feel free to just tune out. This is your forewarning. Um, We're going to be talking about the media coverage of basketball, maybe some basketball stuff in it. Um, When I Before I was doing media, this is a conversation I think I would have listened to if Blake and Eric were having it or, you know, one of the podcasts that I was interested at the time. So I'm hoping that I guess if there's an audience for that kind of stuff now, this is the podcast, especially since there's been so much tension between media and fans, especially as media are more accessible now, the same way that players are. And especially since media are asked to proliferate their brand on social media a lot more and IE or by extension, get a lot more attention, all that kind of stuff. Adam, how the hell are you? I'm doing great, Samson. Thanks for having me. Thanks for, uh, you know, helping me live out my dream, uh, hopping on the Rapcast after bugging you for probably 12 months or so. So I uh, appreciate you having me and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, we're great friends. We talk, we talk a lot. Anytime we leave the house, we end up running into each other, either going to a concert or going to you know, wherever, church in Wellesley, something like that. And I'll tell you this much, Adam and I, we crack more jokes than any media members out there. I, I bet my life on it. I think, yeah, you'd be you'd be right up there in uh, the joke cracking rankings. But um, I think it's, you know, it's just, I think it's just an enjoyment of, of what we get a, a chance to do. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a long basketball season and, and not that it's, you know, not fun to watch basketball for a living, but at the same time, it's just important to, to make sure that you're you're having a good time while doing it because at at sometimes you know the the NBA season and, and you know the Raptors in particular haven't always been so much fun to watch. Yeah. This is the first thing I want to talk about is kind of where media is at currently. And so NBA players, the NBA in particular is massive on social media. Players also have these big social presences. Scotty Barnes with the Raptors for example is a Twitch streamer. You go back like to 20, even something like 2018, before the Twitch boom during the pandemic, that would have been really, really odd for a player to do. But Scotty is accessible for hours during some days when he's streaming. A lot of players have these massive presences on social media where they, you know, do brand deals and where they post. And maybe Kevin Durant is the best example of a guy showing 
as much of his personality as he can in the limited scope he's willing to show to fans by debating with them, arguing with them, having a laugh with them. And this trickles down to a bunch of different interactions between fan and player. This is, you know, the media has been the medium between those two things. I'm curious with NBA players going directly through their own agencies, their own companies, straight to the consumer, the fans. What do you think the relationship is now between the media, the players and the fans? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because I think, uh, you know, you, you mentioned two players who I already had circled on and just as, as guys who uh, definitely make themselves known in, in a sense. And and I think Kevin Durant is, uh, you know, going to be one of the most interesting players to, to ever look back on when we look at the sport of basketball, just the way his career arc went, just the way his you know, his, his openness went just the way, uh, you know, how he kind of shifted the paradigm of basketball over, over the course of, of time. And, um, it's always interesting. I think, you know, when you get to a conversation, when you say, Oh man, like why is Kevin Durant spending, spending so much time of his day on social media? And then you look, and I don't think Kevin Durant's ever really run into a situation where you've, you've seen him in the NBA while we're healthy, where he hasn't been at the top of his game. So I think for, for some players like that, you know, the all-time guys, um, sure, you know, Durant's a guy who's riffing off on social media, you know, Joel Embiid's another guy who, who's, you know, always, you know, sometimes present making, you know, subtle jokes and, and, and jabs. And, you know, he's going to post a tweet about this or Ben Simmons or, you know, uh, coach is fired, you know, whatever he wants to post about. But I think uh, the guys who are at the top of their game, they realize that, it doesn't really take away from from anything they're doing on the basketball court. You know, it's not like they're going to say, oh, it's not like Kevin Durant says, oh, I'm going to skip my gym session today because I got to post for a few hours. It's not like, you know, he's he's skipping out on practice and and, uh, you know, not working on his craft and, and, and those sorts of things. So um, I think it's it's a really it's a really intriguing relationship. Um just because, you know, obviously the players that have, have been in the league for like for years and years, like the Durants and whatnot, um, they kind of know that anything they do is going to be monitored. And um, I, I think it's, I think it's, you know, mostly been a pretty fun, positive development. Obviously, you know, we've seen that players have, have sometimes not always made the smartest moves on social media, but uh, I think it, it, in terms of just, uh, you know, the idea of it being good or bad for the game, I, I, I really enjoy it. And I think a lot of people really enjoy it. And, um, you know, it can be addicting at times, of course, and there's, there's just downfalls, but I think just the idea of just like having these players so accessible where, uh, where you look and, and you know, in years past, you know, these players were kind of like, uh, mythical figures almost in a sense. Um, I, I really generally enjoy, you know, when the players decide to put themselves out there because, because it just, it just gives you something to, to pay attention to all the time. And, you know, people might get a little bit tired of it, but I think overall, I, I tend to really enjoy the players who, who love to throw themselves out there. You mentioned these mythical figures. The media members used to be like they tell the story of the mythical figure and they have a huge impact on how, you know, it's like, what's the what's the term? Hagiography, hey, the making of saints, right? They have a huge impact on how players are perceived. That's why media members for a long time, especially, you know, during the proliferation of the NBA, white media members talking about black players with white ownership, white coaches. And so a lot of players were vilified or their stories weren't told as compassionately as they need to be. You juxtapose this with players now. I think you can recognize this in the fact that some player podcasts aren't listened to as much as players might expect them to be. And that players going directly to social media is also met with like 
hmm, is that true? And players are not reliable storytellers for their own story either. Very few people are. That's why, you know, the, the autobiography versus the biography is a thing. I'm curious where you think media sits in the middle of that as an industry that has more attention now, more money in it now than it ever has, and people consume so much media. Where do you think we sit relative to players trying to tell their own stories and then, you know, writers, talkers of any kind, having conversations with players, coaches, you know, ownership, and then relaying that to, you know, the fans in a different way than I guess the players would. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's always an interesting, uh, you know, topic on sort of what the media's end goal is and, and you know, what they're trying to do and, and how they go about doing it. I think the interesting thing that I always note in, in the way that um, things get picked up and, and broadcast to the world is uh, pretty much every interaction with the media and a player for the most part um outside of you know one-on-one interviews is is generally available somewhere for public consumption but at the same time um most people don't spend their time sitting through going on youtube and watching an entire press conference right most people we know have like myself included have you know pretty short attention spans and you know most people will just be scrolling through and and you know they're either looking for a headline they're looking for a click they're looking for a quote so i think the biggest thing for for media members or for the people who who you know have the hours in their day like myself and you know they're they're paid to do so or or in the sense of you know sometimes fans who are just really interested in that sort of thing and they start growing their own you know platform um i think it's just the the importance of that is just finding a way to present the information that's that's already out there in a fair manner and um at the end of the day like the way i've i've always felt about it is um you know my my opinions are are what they are but i i think that um you know i'm always i've always been more interested in in just hearing whatever the you know person uh you know the player or the coach that's making millions of dollars to you know do this on a on a uh, daily basis. And, and that's, you know, what fans are, fans are paying to see and, you know, most interested in, I'm always interested in just seeing whatever they say and, and however you can contextualize that to, to present it to the, somebody who's just scrolling through their Twitter feed or, you know, who's just scrolling through, um, you know, Google or Facebook or, or whatever platform they're getting their news from and, and just finding a way to just present that information in the fairest way possible, um, with, with the most context, context possible. So I think we agree on that, that, Anytime somebody has, this is kind of what I go into a press conference looking for, basically. Like, for example, we had a lot of laughs this past year because you were asking, you did a lot of the asking of opposing star players about Scotty Barnes. Because truthfully, there's a, there's a real appetite for that. People want to know how their young star is viewed through the lens of other star players in the NBA. You were going and asking a lot of the opposing stars Hey, what do you think about Scotty? How he's progressing, all this kind of stuff. And players repeatedly gave very good answers, had high expectations for Scotty. Um, for myself, since I'm doing a lot of analysis writing of what's going on during the games, I go in knowing what the team did on the court, knowing that if I say it, it means something to some people, but not that much to other people. And so I want to ask questions wherein the player or the coach will say the same thing that I'm going to say because it's more meaningful. I'm curious what you think of that approach. Like, you know, yeah. like, write, writing or asking questions to write to your story, I should say. Yeah, I mean, I think the way I always think about it is I try and, you know, um, like 
when I stepped into the Raptors beat two years ago, I tried to learn kind of the, one, the different personalities of, of each beat writer and two, just try to learn as much about like the Raptors media core as a whole and, and what each person generally writes about it and sort of, um, you know, going through, uh, you know, 41 or, uh, 41 pre and post game interviews every single uh, every single game. You, you kind of get a, a sense of like what everybody is looking for, what's been asked already. You know, um, what is stale? You know, like I think especially in terms of a head coach, that's a relationship where you you get to know them pretty well. And um, you know, you don't have to ask about. I think in in some cases, if the Raptors have let's say four home games over the span of two weeks, or um, you know something like that, if if somebody asked about, oh, you know, um, do you think Thad Young's getting back in the rotation this week, and and you know the coach gives a good answer, you don't need to ask about that for another two weeks because you kind of already have your answer. So I think um, I just try and gain as much information as possible, and and I try and see like what what you can't infer that that isn't hasn't already been asked um and i think you know getting back to your question i I think it's just um whenever you see a quote that's been like presented on social media for for whatever for whatever reason it is uh, you know it could be a coach you know gassing up a raptors player it could be a you know raptors coach uh you know maybe saying uh, saying one of his own players needs to do a bit better i think it's important to just try and understand um you know, what the genesis of that question was. And, and I think that's sometimes where the disconnect comes, where where you see, you know, a, a coach saying, oh, you know, uh, this bench player could have been a bit better tonight. And, and people think it's super personal, but it's it's just the result of a direct question um, that's being asked by by a reporter trying to, trying to gain information. And, and the same thing with, uh, you know, when I was asking a bunch of players about, about Scotty Barnes, I was writing this article that was just like, here's how the NBA stars view Scotty Barnes. And it took the course over like two months to get all these questions in. Um, and it was weird because, you know, if you're a Western Conference team, you visit the Raptors once a season. And, and you know, I got a couple, um, you know, Western Conference players in there and, and things like that. And and when the Raptors are losing, people say, oh, why are you asking about this guy who's, who's you know, struggling, quote unquote. And um, it, it's an interesting relationship to just try and gauge what each media members are doing and sort of their, their end result. And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, most of the time it's just simply each individual media member is just trying to get something out of it. And it's usually just the end result of an article, but, but in the process, these quotes can come up in a, in a way that it seems like there's, you know, maybe a further motive there that I think, uh, you know, usually doesn't exist. I think that's something I've seen people complain about in the past is that we, with the Raptors elsewhere, that during press conferences, especially not like big press conferences, like Darko's introduction where we're handed a mic and you get the question and you get the answer and you know the full context of it. But a lot of the times you can't actually hear, especially like I've listened to myself ask questions and I'm really bad at like talking for the mic. The coach can hear me or the player can hear me, but the mic can't really pick me up. So a lot of times players are answering questions that you don't really understand or know. And then that creates like this contextless um, discussion of it, which I think is, you know, I don't know if it's feasible to because scrums and like press conferences are just like everybody's talking and it's this communal effort to have a good conversation with the coach. It's not coach and media. It's just a bunch of people talking and trying to figure stuff out for the most part. But um, I don't know. That's interesting. I'm curious where you think like, do you think that media currently does a good job of providing context and not sensational sensationalizing things for social media. 
Uh, I think it's an interesting balance because um, I think when you look at like just the the average like day to day of a media member, um, you, you know, if you're especially if you're you know one of the more senior members of the Raptors beat, they're they're generally like they have a million things going on on, on a given day, right? Like you have you know you have the game day, like just on a game day, you'll probably have your game day. You'll have like two or three radio hits. You might have a TV hit, right? Like I just think um, you know for for a given uh, yeah, just any given like big major media member, they're always doing a, a million things. And I think um, sometimes uh, the, I think where context is lost is when, um, you know, things are maybe paraphrased and not fully understood um, just in, in the way that uh, things get things get posted on, on, you know, Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days. Um, and I think the most important thing that I always try and do is just use the longest quote possible. Um, you know, whenever I put a, put something out into the universe, I always try and, you know, see how many words I can get from a player, because I think that NBA players are really interesting where you have the, um, you know, you have the OG Ananobis of the world who's been known for giving the one or two sentence answers. And then you have, you know, other players like Fred Van Vliet who will talk for, you know, sometimes like two and a half minutes on, on a given answer. And, and you're, you're saying to yourself like, Oh man, I got to get this post out into the world. And, and, you know, how do I contextualize this? And, you know, what do I, what do I say? So I think the, the way that I found that creates the least, um, amount of friction or like room for, um, you know, room for lack of, uh, or room to be as clear as possible. Um, is just to, just to, get as many words as the player possibly said into a quote. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's always tough, right? When you see that, you know, the big accounts, you know, the aggregator accounts, the uh, NBA centrals of the world, so to speak, and they're pulling from, you know, 30 different, um, 30 different media markets and 30 different. On com. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's a tough one because, um, you know, sometimes you see a quote and then it goes out into the world and it's, you know, one sentence and then you notice the second sentence is paraphrased and then it says, oh, you know, there was a fight in the locker room or there was, you know, this and that. And then you see the beat reporter coming in with a follow up. So I think the main way, um, you know, for, for for anybody to to try and contextualize it is, uh, yeah, if you can, you know, if you see a quote that looks a little bit fishy, um, if you get a chance to, to actually check out the full availability. But at the same time, I, I know that. You know, not everybody has the time in the day to search out these things, and I think it. I think it is super important for reporters to just um, I think realize they, that. I think they do quotes- on on the whole. I think reporters do a pretty bad job, and I think that's um, influenced by social media specifically. And I think that there's economic factors and social factors that push them towards doing a, a worse job of it because there is, as far as for your, I don't know your platform an upside to being misunderstood constantly when you're tweeting out other people's words, I think, you know? Yeah. And, and I, think I the, yeah, it doesn't have to be malicious, I, I should say. But I think that uh, as somebody who is like, and like, I am a slut for context. I'm just always trying to like couch things, couch, 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 couch. I think there is, it's usually, it's like the, the usual suspects who do it. I'm not talking about Toronto specifically, but as you said, like NBA Central or something. I think that there are people who repeatedly abuse that, and those types of people, it's a you know a, a self fulfilling prophecy or whatever. People who abuse those measures of journalism and do a bad job of it will actually get a lot of promotion online and a lot of engagement 
and that will continue to push them further. And then that, you know, increased engagement will mean that that's a lot of what people are seeing. That's, I think, yeah, my I, the thesis on it. I, I think the, like the, the other thing too, is uh, like when you just go back to the point of, of not being malicious, um, like I, I think that for the most part, if you're a, if you're an NBA journalist or just like any kind of sports journalist, I would say almost everybody that I've met, um, you know, in the industry, they do it because they they really like enjoy their job. They really enjoy the sport of basketball. They enjoy what they do. And I think that, um, you know, in, in some cases there, there are like, uh, relationships between players and media that, that can grow toxic. But I think generally people, you know, don't like want, um, their space to be a negative one. And, and, um, you know, you can talk about like the, the way that, you know, basketball gets covered on, on ESPN, for example. And sometimes, you know, there's, uh, you know, larger, uh, you know, you, you go on social media and there's a, there's the same three debates that are going on every day. You know, is, is this player, the MVP? is this player, you know, a, a ring chaser? Is this player going to get 17 rings in their NBA career or, or, or whatever like that? But I think, um, I think you said, like, I don't think a lot of people are malicious about it. I think it's just like the way that things ultimately end up getting pre presented sometimes uh, can can get the original messages lost uh, along the way. I think that I've only met a few in my time covering it, but beat reporters who you can tell there's not a lot of um, care for the way that they present info. They They are hyper aware of what charts. They're hyper aware of what brings attention. And, but I think that's a lot more common for the people who speak on the big places like ESPN, where it's like not even infotainment, but it's just entertainment. And those people are kind of egged on by producers, whereas like the journalist editor thing, you're not going to have somebody in your ear saying like, yeah, push this, drive for this. It's, it's a lot more personal between, you know, media, players, coaches, and all that kind of stuff. But I have met in my time some some beat writers who are just like they they want the like i don't know salacious news to go out there and they're they're very driven by that i'm curious aggregation is kind of what i want to talk about because that's a big one we see i don't know you get aggregated sometimes i get aggregated sometimes i'm behind a paywall so less so um sometimes people will aggregate the podcast um in your mind if you were to be aggregated what are you hoping to see happen in a tweet um yeah i think the, the the most important thing about you know i i think uh you know like brian windhorst is a guy who who always seems to talk about aggregation and you know the the issues with aggregation and um you know part of my job as well is is just finding a way to you know in some ways aggregate news i think like when you look at um you know, especially around things like like trade rumors, you know, draft rumors, signing rumors, like those sorts of things are, are things which um, sometimes get just embedded in, in larger articles by, uh, you know, people that are, are more in the know than, than myself. I've, I've, you know, never really um, had too many scoops in my career of, of any kind. But but at the same time, um, you know, there's sometimes there's things that are buried in, in uh, you know, larger um larger pieces by league-wide beat writers that that would say oh you know the, the raptors made this trade offer or the raptors are interested in signing this guy and and again i think with with aggregation uh the most important thing to do is is just make sure that you you know you hope that it's truthful and i think that's the 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 
way that I've always seen it is, um, you know, if you're putting a quote into the world, uh, you never want to be the person who has to say, oh, I, I didn't mean it like this, or I, I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. I think, I think, you know, if you're able to, I try to, um, for a while, I was always trying to include videos in my tweets, um, just because I think that's a, that's a way where you can say, oh, like, you know, here's the direct, um, here's the direct impact. And, and I realize that, you know, sometimes that doesn't always matter as much, but I think as, as long as you just put as many of the, the quotes from a, from a direct person that, that, um, limits the issues with, with aggregation. So, um, I think aggregation is, you know, sometimes used as a, like a dirty word in the sense where, where people are saying like, Oh, why would, why would this be aggregated? And why would that be aggregated? And like I said, you know, going back to Windhorse, she's a guy who's, you can tell is, you know, careful with his words and the way that he speaks because he knows that you know, people, people care about everything that he says. And, you know, that happens with a lot of the, the biggest, uh, reporters in our sport, but, um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, it's just, it's the nature of the sport is people are, you know, constantly craving news and they're constantly craving rumors and, and, and that sort of thing. And, um, I think just when you're doing aggregation for, for whatever style of, of writing or reporting you're doing, it's just important to be, um, yeah, as, as fair and, uh, and accurate as possible. I think the big thing is that what, what are the means by which you are held accountable? You know, if you're say a reporter, you have a public persona, profile, whatever. And if you continuously upset players and fans because you're bad at relaying news, because that's like, that's the first step, right? Is like media takes what players say and they contextualize, they write stories, they report on it, all this kind of stuff. And those relationships, it's very important for those to, you know, do better that you get those right. And in some cases, fans are, they care a lot less that you get it right. Fans, it's cannon fodder a lot of the time. They just want something to talk about and react to. But players, since you're talking about them, it's very important that you get it right. And you and I have seen people who get different responses from different athletes. People get different responses from different coaches because of how they've behaved in the past. So there's a, there's a you know, cause and effect there. For aggregators who exist mostly online, I don't think anything holds them to an ideal. I don't think anything holds them to reporting something truthfully. And it's another step down the game of telephone. So it becomes tougher to maintain the, you know, the initial message. And so it's extremely important that reporters and journalists take it extremely seriously to provide like the most context, the most truthful um, presentation of what's being said and that when you are and to not editorialize but instead to separate your opinion from what's being said and I think a lot of the time that gets conflated and especially from aggregators and so it's not inherently a bad thing some people I think can aggregate in good faith and can do a, de a decent job of kind of like diluting the information and presenting it holistically as it was kind of the in as it was intended to be received or put out. But I think that, um, like most things, if you expect just people in general to do a good job in relaying information, the farther it gets away from the source, the less likely it is to be true. And the aggregation assembly line, because now we see it go down like three or four levels. Like it could be a person, a guy says it, and then Brian Windhorst says it, and then NBA Central says it, and they don't aggregate properly. And then someone else says it, and I think there was like a Reddit post that said um, how people don't understand basketball is that Bill Simmons watches like 10 games of a guy a year, 
but mostly highlight packages. And then he talks about basically a player he's only seen through highlight packages. And then there's a guy who's listening who has watched one game but listens to Bill Simmons' opinion of highlight packages. And then that guy tells people who haven't watched a single game. And then that's mostly the opinion of a player is people who haven't actually seen a guy play. Um, the farther you get away from it, the tougher it is. And that's, I think, my qualm with aggregation because I don't think most people do it very well, unfortunately. But I guess the one thing I want to know, what do you want to see in a tweet? Like if somebody aggregates you, what do you hope to see in the tweet? Um, yeah, I think uh, I think in terms of just, just being aggregated, um, you know, a lot of the time I think it, it also depends on um, you know, just different, different mediums as well, because like you, you know, you said in a tweet, but sometimes I find a lot of the, the uh, a lot of the time there's, uh, you know, accounts on Instagram or, or usually, usually it's Instagram where, where you see, um, you know, sort of the lasting impact of, of something, because I think on Twitter, things can die out like, you know, within the course of a day or so. And, and on Instagram, just the way the algorithms work is, is, you know, it's just a, it's just an app where people sometimes see things later. And um, I think, you know, one, people always like to be credited. Um, I think after a while, you kind of, you know, stop caring about that. You know, if you, sometimes you see your things credited, sometimes they're not credited, you know, you can tell where they come from. Sometimes you get tagged and, 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 you know, I kind of just kind of gave up on, you know, really caring at all about that because it's like, uh, you know, it's this person, unless they're, if it's a big brand account and they're like making money off of it, then they should probably, uh, you know, credit things properly. Um, but I, I think, um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's all about just uh, trying to just present facts in a truthful manner. Um, I feel like I'm beating a drum here, at, at, at um, in some sense, but I think uh, you know you want. I think for me, the way I've always felt about it, it's actually a it's a quote that my mom told me. And so she used, she worked in the media industry for many years, recently retired. Um, but she said like if you're ever putting somebody in the news, you know whether it's uh, somebody that's famous or whether it's somebody that's uh, you know just going to be in the news once. Um, and especially for the people who are just going to be in the news once, like you, you kind of owe it to them to give it your best and most accurate um, interpretation um, of the events. And, and, you know, you, you deserve to like, if you're, if you're putting your information out there in the world, um, you know, it's important to not rush through these kinds of things. And, and, you know, it could be for a, a player, like one player I think about all the time is uh, like Justin Champagne. He, you know, had his uh, short, short ish stint in Toronto, all things considered. And I remember I had this one, uh, he had this one press conference where, um, you know, he had a pretty decent game and I believe they were playing Oklahoma city and, and he just missed a, uh, possible yeah. buzzer beater at the, you know, at the end of the game. And I worked that he came, game actually. And he, he came into the, you know, he came into the press conference room afterwards and he was super hyped up and, and, you know, they, they lost the game. But I remember I was kind of thinking like, Oh, this is a pretty big moment in his like NBA career. He's he kind of had like the most run he'd ever had. And, you know, we, I wrote about him and a couple other people wrote about him. And, and that was kind of like the highlight of his time with the Raptors, which was weird. But I think just anytime you're, you know, you know, star players are going to have their moments and their, and their days and all that. But for the guys that are just trying to crack the league or just, you know, on the two-way contracts and are fighting for roster spots, like it's still very real to them. And um, I think it's just important to just present the information in a way that, you know, you realize that, um, Sure, maybe for for a guy that's already making a hundred plus million dollars, you know, might not be the uh, be all end all for them. But but for you know the guys that are are further down, the bench players, the the guys that are still fighting for the next contract, it, it really does matter how you how you do present them to the world. And and uh, even if they are professional athletes and are making more money than than you or I, it, it doesn't mean that they they still don't have a vested interest in in the way that they're they're shown to the world. I'm I'm curious, and. Show it to your mom. That's a great humanistic approach to it is, you know, 
applying an extra level of care is never going to hurt you in a situation, I find, anyway. And obviously, she finds that as well. What do you think is the best approach to be mindful of a player's celebrity status and to like, hey, there's 18 people sitting here and you're the one in front of the microphone and to approach it that way? Or do you think it's generally healthier to say human, human conversation? Yeah, I I think... um... I've always, you know, I, I think a, a lot of people when they kind of step into that NBA or, you know, whatever league media room and for the first time, it's like a little bit intimidating because, you know, you probably recognize uh, a couple other media members that have been there for a while. You know, they're, they're on TV and the things things like that. And then and then you walk in and you, you know, you see players and you go, wow, like, you know, that guy's real tall. And uh, and, and you say, yeah, you know, but but after a while, I, I think you realize that, like, it's it's not that tough to have a conversation with these sorts of people sure you might like you know get a little nervous asking your first couple questions and you know you might fumble up on your words a little bit but you realize that you know everybody else in the media room um is in the same boat right like they're um everybody's gone through their you know their, their training or, or you know different levels of writing to get to that point and and i think it's it's the same thing with players right like you you realize that, yeah, sure. There's, there's a player who might've, might be making a super max deal or they may, you know, be on 15 all-star teams or, or anything like that. But, um, it's important to try and just find a way to crack them, uh, in the sense where, where you can just get something that really provokes their thought. And I think that's like one of my favorite things to do when you're in a press conference is to like really have that moment where, um, you know, you think you can realize the player is actually, you know, thinking about your question and not just giving you a, a generic answer. I think my, they probably, you know, people ask me sometimes like what my favorite moment was, um, like in a press conference. And I think it so far for me, it was probably, it was a conversation I had with Durant. Um, it was just talking about Christian Coloco who, you know, was wearing number 35 and he said, you know, Durant was his favorite player growing up. And, um, Part of me thought maybe, you know, he'd, he'd heard that just because it's a thing in Toronto you'd heard. And, you know, Kevin Durant's like the most online guy in the world. And, and, uh, I, you know, I relayed this info to him and I was like, Hey, Kevin, like, you know, um, Christian Coloco, where's your number? And, and like, he really stopped about it and thought about it for a second. And, you know, he smiled and, and, uh, this was a moment that like had kind of, you know, kind of went out there and it made it onto like the official NBA account and, and all that. So, um, but I think, I think you can tell that, you know, even these players that have, you know, been, you know, Hall of Fame bound uh, superstar players, they still have these moments where, you know, maybe they don't love doing all the media stuff, but they they still try and uh, I'd say for the most part, they try and give it uh, give it an honest answer when they're asked questions that that kind of provoke thoughts within them. So, yeah, I think it's important just to like treat these people like humans, see what you can get out of them. And and you know that um, sometimes your questions hit and, you know, you get an amazing answer and sometimes, you, you know, your question doesn't quite hit and you, you, you kind of have to figure out if, uh, exactly what you're going to get out of that press conference. But, um, yeah, after a while, I think, you know, you just, you just realize that to treat these people like humans and, and just kind of understand the, the journey that they've got on to get to whatever point in their career they're at. Yeah. I think it's, it's a lot harder for an NBA player to view it the other way. Like the, the NBA players understand that we're humans on the other side of it, but we're, we're all like, if you were an NBA, NBA player, why wouldn't you view media as like, ugh, you know, like just a bunch of people trying to get you to say something. And, you know, a lot of the like players don't read the gamers. They don't read the stuff. They typically only read the big, big stuff they see, maybe even aggregated online. Right. And so when most of your interactions with media, the things you say kind of dissipate into nothingness, you never keep track of them going forward. Only when it turns out bad, 
and you're facing this room full of people who like it can only really go bad or okay for you it it would be hard to be like okay just human to human we're just having a conversation and i think some players get there but i understand why a lot of players don't but from our point of view i think the just like we're on equal footing i know you're a millionaire i know everyone's here to see you but just a couple people talking is the the best approach i'm kind of curious since you started you take in a ton of media about a bunch of different sports you've been like you're a fan of so many things we've talked about this you know off the pod of course but kind of looking at the coverage of the nba from when you first started watching it to now what do you think has changed um yeah i, I think uh the way I, I think about it sometimes is like i you know i think uh most people you know when you get a little bit older into your teen years you start to like grasp pro sports as a whole a little bit more like i i grew up in toronto and you know kind of like watch the raptors through the mid 2000s but i was never you know it was hard to cheer for those teams in a sense because <laughs> they were just they weren't the best teams and and then you know you get a little bit older and uh you know you're following the league as a whole and and i think so much of you know seeing the coverage around lebron in particular and just um you know the decision and kind of his time in miami and 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 things like that um I remember th there was a moment where where I was just kind of told that, you know, you're not supposed to like LeBron James because he made a decision to go to a different team. And and then I remember there was a moment when I was watching the finals in, in 2012 and I'd kind of told myself for a couple of years, oh, I don't really like LeBron and I don't really like this super team and, um, you know, things like that. And I was watching him and I was like, this is the best athlete I've ever seen in my life. Um, and then I was kind of like, I don't know why we're, we're not supposed to, you know, celebrate this and enjoy this. And, and I think, you know, kind of, uh, kind of that moment, I, I realized that, um, like I always kind of tell people, like, I don't really dislike any NBA players for the most part. Um, like almost, almost entirely, you know, there's, you know, there's certain players that have, you know, you can get annoying for certain, off court reasons or, you know, kind of play like weird styles. And, you know, there's, there's the pests in the league and the, and, and things like that. But like from just, uh, from just like a general idea, um, I try to just enjoy just about as much, you know, basketball in the purest form as I can. And, um, I think, I think one thing that I think, you know, people have realized is just when it comes to LeBron that sometimes the, those debates about, you know, is he, is he a good player? Is he a good, uh, is he a good ambassador for the game? Is he a good scorer? Which, you know, obviously he's proven, proven all these things over, over time. Um, I, I think we, we've seen that, you know, sometimes people realize like this, this forced toxicity is, is kind of silly. Um, I think, you know, Russell Westbrook is another player where, you know, um, people have seen over time that, you know, hating on him became like the, the fun, normal thing to do. And then people kind of, um, you know, backed off a bit when they realized like, Hey, maybe, maybe he's, you know, not the reason for all the Los Angeles Lakers problems over time. So I think I like to see when people just like really recognize the human side of players. Um, especially the ones that have, you know, um, not been able to, to get to whatever, um, goal they're reaching for. I think like you look at a guy like Nikola Jokic and, I've always found him just like easy to kind of support his story. The same thing with Giannis before him, where it was like, oh, you know, great individual player. People always want to see him perform in the playoffs. Is he going to be able to perform in the playoffs? And, and, um, you think it's that's nice more when the, present now in media than it was back then? Um, I think it's, it's always a tough thing, right? Because, because there was, we did have that like, uh, several year stretch of, of, you know, 
people would just call the NBA boring because of uh, because of the way the the finals matchups seem to be recurring every year between between Cleveland and Golden State and and I, I think the the way that the the league has you know gone into five five different champions in five years um, has kind of helped in some sense you know create um, different players that are easy to easy to root for as they try and you know get their uh, get their way up the ladder but at the same time um, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one to answer um, because because I think people also do generally enjoy hating on players and and I kind of think I got past that stage after a while because I realized like hey you like you know you don't have to say you're a fan of all thirty teams or anything like that but but you can also just appreciate that um, you know ranking players endlessly isn't necessarily just going to be the best way to enjoy the game. Do you think that um, hmm, I guess do you think that the the racial aspect of the league has gotten better over time and do you think that social media is responsible for that in any way um yeah i think it's 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 a interesting one because you can see the way that you know certain players um get covered right and you you know you look at like pascal siakam's a guy in toronto um where you you know you kind of you know there's just like a a guy who's you know coming to the NBA and, and, you know, what, you know, didn't grow up in North America and, you know, obviously grew up in Cameroon and, and, um, you know, came into the game later in life and, and just received so much like intense criticism, you know, for his, uh, struggles throughout the, throughout the 2020 NBA playoffs. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of, you know, racist things levied towards him and you see a lot of, uh, you know, talk a lot when, when it comes to contracts and things like that, where people say like, Oh, these players don't deserve that. And, and, you know, um, when you talk about that sort of thing. So I think it, it is, um, I think, I think, you know, society as a whole, it seems like it, it, it does inch closer towards getting better. And then, and then you, you know, you sometimes you spend a lot of time online and you're saying like, Oh man, this is still a really, really toxic environment. And, and you wonder, um, you know, um, if the media and everybody's presenting, you know, a heavily black league in, in a fair manner. So um, I think that's a, just an important thing when you're, when you're conscious of the way you're talking about, about players and, and, you know, about their, about their stories and you, you know, what does this player deserve and what does this player, um, you know, uh, what's their, what's their place in the NBA and, and things like that. I, I think it's super important for like, you know, people like you and I as, as white media members to just, um, just, just be aware of the, yeah, history of the league, history of the game, history of the sport, and, and all that, and and just kind of understand um, how important it is to be, um, yeah, just like conscious of the moment. It's I do find it interesting because you had with, I think the NBA obviously over the past fifteen years has expanded as far as like the fandom of it the amount of money it makes, everything is just way, way bigger. Even the salary cap, you look at 10 years ago, the salary cap, I believe, was like 58 million. This year, it's about to be 134 million. And that means that that's an expression of every team 30 times over, and that's 50% of the CBA. Like, there's just way more money there. And when you get money and when you get analytics, you get players talked about in number form, dollars, impact, etc. You get that, and I think that's dehumanizing, and I think that that puts players in like a negative light, and it skews towards a more like ownership-friendly view of the league.
But then also, I think over the past like 10 years as a fan and then a media member, I've observed the fandom come more towards pro player, pro labor. And so leaning on the side of like player, 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 instead of leaning on the side of team, team, team. And so like, I think that's the proper place to sit, RE, the power dynamic. But I think that's also something that's changed where for years and years and years, and media was definitely complicit in this, players were positioned as dissidents nonstop all the time, even in an era where there was nothing close to player empowerment. But if a player ever got out of line, God forbid anything, like it was never about what the ownership did. It was never about the coach. It was like players acting out for years and years and years. You could even see that with the decision and LeBron, the coverage of it. It's seen differently now. And player empowerment is obviously the agency the players have and the the liberties they take to kind of direct their own traffic is way different than what it was. But I think on the whole, just a player saying like, hey, I'd like to live here. I want to work here. This is what I want to do. And, you know, the ideals of the player being in opposition to the ideals of the team are viewed more friendly by fans and media now than they were even just say like 10 years ago. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it reminds me of like another moment when you talk about the player owner dynamic, um, because I think that the, you know, people talk about the NBA as being a star driven league. And I think that's like, I, sometimes people talk about it in like a negative sense. And I always found that really strange because, you know, it's basketball is a sport where, you know, your stars are going to control so much of the game. And, you know, as much as people love to celebrate the role players and, you know, the guys who come up big and, and, you know, clutch playoff moments and, and, you know, get remembered forever because of it, it's, um, you know, your best teams are, are where they are because of their stars. And, and one moment that I thought got a really weird amount of coverage this year um, was the the incident of the playoffs between the, you know, the Nuggets and Suns where Jokic and, and Matt Ishbia were fighting for, you know, a basketball on the sidelines. And, and, for like it was i don't know two or three days after before the next game there was all this talk about should Jokic be suspended should you know um you know what what's this hold and and um and then people were like praising matt ishbia for like being the nicest guy in the world for saying like oh Jokic shouldn't be suspended and i remember i was just thinking about this and i was like one i've heard matt ishbia's name quite a bit for a guy who's owned a basketball team for about you know two months or, or whatever it was at that time and and you know this is a guy who again has seems to find his way in every you know phoenix sun story i've i've read in the past you know four months and and two it was strange because i remember both Jokic and uh Michael Malone were asked about it after the game and they were kind of like, I don't know who that guy was, right? Like as even though you're a billionaire and and you know you're you're at you're on ESPN and, and all that, like you shouldn't really care about Matt Ishbia all that much, right? Like, um, you know, it's it's interesting when ownership changes hands and it's interesting to see how, you know, transactions are are done. And, you know, it's clear that the Suns have, you know, thrown a bunch at trying to win now with with the way things are done. But at the end of the day, um, as much as we like talking about transactions and, and, and off-court stuff and all that, like it's a it's a star-driven league, and and I think that you know players should generally you know be behind these guys that have have dedicated their life to the sport of basketball. And you know, Matt Ishbia, you know, all respect to his Michigan State career and you know whatever basketball he played before that. Um, you know, he's 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 an NBA owner because he was he worked in the mortgage industry for for years and years and years. And um, I think it's like you know nobody's a fan of mortgages right like you're a fan of basketball and and uh so i think i think just generally even if you were to say like oh i support the players in 100 percent of their their you know cba fights and you know um 
battles against the owners and things like that. Like, I think you'd come out, um, you know, looking like a, I don't know when I say it's like a moral battle, but yeah, in the sense of just like, I think you should, I think it's a moral battle. Yeah. (laughs) I think, I, I, I think just, just ethically, like, I think if you just want to say, Oh, you know, these are the guys that, that I pay to watch. These are the guys that are, you know, putting up the highlights that, um, that fund this league and, and, and things like that. I think it's, it's okay to just be like, yeah, you know, we want our players to get paid. And, and I think, you know, coaches, um, coaches too I think you know a lot of coaches they talk about they're like these are my guys right like you know you only have um you know 15 17 guys on a roster and you spend a lot of time with them and and as much as coaches like to you know work in conjunction with management you know they like to see uh, you know it's not always quite a friendship but 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 just like they're that strong working relationship and and I think it's okay to just like you know understand like hey um you know the salary cap is what it is but at the same time it's cool to see guys that you you like um get paid. And, and I think sometimes fans, you know, sometimes say they see a number and they go, Oh, like that's too much. And, and, um, it's, I don't know if there's any stopping it anytime soon. And I don't think I'm going to convince anybody to feel otherwise, but, um, I wish sometimes there was just a bit more appreciation of, you know, the, you know, where you get from uh, the start of your career to, to where you get to, to get that, you know, major, uh, max salary or, or multi-year contract or whatever it is that, that you're making, you know, a ton of money at the end of the day. Sure. So, the last thing I want to talk about is the kind of the future of coverage. And so I'll present it like this. Um, there are more people writing about the NBA now by far than there was in 2008, let's say. Um, Zach Lowe famously got hired by, ES, by ESPN in the wake of or prior to the decision to help cover that. Because they were expecting like, oh, with the decision, it clearly signals how much more people care about not only the NBA, but the transaction side of things. Just like the NBA as a whole, you can cover it in the off season. There's a lot more people who are you know, trying to read stuff. There's a lot more people who are trying to listen to stuff. So the industry is now like chalk, chalk full of people writing, talking, videos, TikToks, whatever it is, short form, long form. And the majority of those people now, whereas like prior to it, if you were a sports writer or a sports journalist, you would be probably close to like the median wage in in a given country or something like that. Now the majority of writers would, if they do it full time, it would you'd be below the poverty line. And so the industry is making just hand over fist a ton of money, but there's more people for that money to go to. And it's not, you know, it's not something that is a viable career for many people who do it. And since everything's moved online, the internet has been historically extremely poor at paying people for what they produce. It has resulted in truly like late capitalist haves and have nots, 99%, 1%, etc. With that said, what do you think the future of the industry is with players more confidently providing their own look into themselves, not necessarily doing it through media with less money in media. And like, it's important for there to be that middle ground where people hold people accountable and look for different things and provide perspective from like a working class person who covers these players. I'm curious where you think the future of the industry is going while looking at the monetary trends and coverage trends. Yeah, um, I think it's, you know, not necessarily a, a positive one, um, you know, to, to, to say the least. Uh, I think it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an interesting one, too, because I think, 
you know, when you look around just the, you know, the media room when you're at, you know, Scotiabank Arena or whatever arena that a media member is in, um, most of these people are, are kind of, you know, like lifers in, in their, in their industry. Um, you know, there's people that come and go, but, um, it's not like there's too many job openings every so often, right? Like there's only, even for the biggest networks, right? Like people, um, it, it's rare that people just, just leave the industry at, at some point. And, and you hope that, um, you know, people that have found a way to kind of ground themselves in it as, as long as they're able to, you know, withstand the, the long hours and, and the burnout and, and, you know, all the, all the stress that comes with it, with the job sometimes. Um, I think, I think you look at, you know, certain individuals and, and it's always kind of a gamble for a, or not necessarily a gamble, but it's like a, it's a business decision for whatever network that or, or employer that they're supported for to say, okay, you know, are we keeping this given person with us? Uh, and how long are we keeping them for? And, and you hope as a media member that your, your employer is saying, you know, this is a good person to keep around. Um, so I think, I think in one sense, it's, it's always about like individuals, because I think it's so much harder to, um, you know, not that there's not people that are willing to do the job because there's so many people that are willing. I think it's, it's always a, this, this balance of, you know, major, major funding source, whether it's, you know, a telecom, right. It's a Bell or a Rogers, um, or, or, you know, any of their major media supporters. And, and it's just always a balance of trying to figure out for these giants, if they want to pay people money. And, um, I think that, you know, it, it would, it's, it's weird in the sense of, of where you look at where the funding comes from, because so much of it has come from like digital advertising, which like you said, is not a, not a great source of, of ways to pay people. And I think there's, um, you know, we've seen that the subscription model is, you know, obviously something that, that you employ and other websites employ, but people just famously also say like, why would I pay for sports coverage? I can get it for free. Um, so I think, I think it's super important just for, um, yeah, the people that are, that are in the industry to, um, just give it their most honest shot and, and just understand the, the, the scarcity of, of jobs in the industry while also just like being, it's, it's hard because I don't think anybody wants to hear journalists complain about they're underpaid. Um, as much as I, you know, it pains me to, it pains me to say that sometimes because people would say like, Oh, you know, I would take your job tomorrow. And, um, I, I think the future of the industry is, is, you know, like you said, not, not the, not the brightest. Um, and it's, it's just this like awful grind sometimes where, where you say like, Oh, you know, I, I love what I do. Um, and I think, I think, you know, I'm super fortunate personally, but, but I think for, for so many people that are getting into it, it's a, it's a tough one because, um, there's, there's only so many, like, not that there's not enough physical space, but there's only so many employers in the world that are, that are actually paying a, a, a living wage. And, and I think it's just important for, for the people who, who do um, work in this industry to just kind of speak out about their, their experiences and, and speak out on behalf of the people that aren't able to stick it out in this field um, because they need, you know, to just like live and, and, you know, support their families and support their, uh, support their livelihoods and, and, you know, pay rent in the city of Toronto or, or whatever major city they're in. So as, as somebody who's like been able to make it work, um, I know that it's, it's not something that always would have been, uh, available to everyone. And I think it's important to just like talk about that and appreciate that and, you know, fight for, fight for the, anybody who's, who is trying to make it in the industry. I think it's more than anything, a monetization problem because the, the people who, the, the places that do provide a living wage typically pay less, like basically like any employer, right? Most big corporations are making a, a ton of money 
and like are focused more on profit than they are on supporting their employees. But it's that's why I think it's important to highlight that like more people take in NBA content, written work, video, whatever than ever before. And people are paid less, like way, way less on average. And it's because nobody really knows how to monetize the internet properly. So my worry is that if you go to like YouTube or something, the commentary community on YouTube, um, not necessarily video essay, but reactionary commentary stuff is very big. There's a lot of people who get a lot of views. There's smaller channels that when they do commentary on something that is of particular interest, their views will skyrocket. And then so it's like this ultimate, just like the invisible hand of the free market. Talk about the stuff that are like the the deepest interests of humanity. And then that's what drives. And so it's just like people's vapid, like very quick, gimme, 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 you know, the way they want to get like news is what will be reflected in the news that they are given. And so that's that's what I worry about. And so like commentary is just like it's less so about the person who's doing it and more so about what they're commenting on. And that means that you are definitely like a slave to how you position and present the commentary in how it's received, in how many people view it. And then also it means that you have to attach, continuously attach yourself to different things to try and maintain up with what people want. And that means that you can't really carve your own lane. That means that you can't come to understand something extremely well because you've worked with it for a long time because you have to move with the, the trends of what people want commentary on. And what happens in the YouTube commentary space is that basically it's haves and have nots. It's a sea of people producing. Then, you know, a very small percentage of those people have a lot of money because, you know, the views and all that kind of stuff centralizes there. They can say they can do merchandise, they can do Patreon and all that kind of stuff. And I think that is the natural flow of how people consume online. And I think that like media, if people want it to be protected in any way, you have to probably end up paying for it because people still don't know how to monetize the internet. And that's expensive. I pay for like seven different people's patrons who do sports coverage. Like that's that's expensive. But I know that it's important that I pay for those people so that they get a chance to do it. And like it's expensive for me. It doesn't end my life though. And it's trying to battle turning into like YouTube commentary because I think that's the way that everything pushes is like if you don't protect industries, they will become gig economied. Like they, they will just completely be flattened into that completely and totally. And I think that's very bad for everyone down the line. But I don't know. Labor protections are important. You can try and do it yourself. But yeah, I don't know what it's going to look like for the NBA um, or for basketball media coverage. But I do think if there's an intervention and like a curiosity and a want to protect it, um, and whether consumers want that or not, they don't have to want that. The people in the industry definitely do. Um, there has to be like intervention of some sort to try and protect what it is and that it doesn't just become like a, a CPM type of, um, I guess, industry where it's like some people get millions of views and make like $120,000 a year. And then some people get hundreds of thousands of views and make 20000 and then other people just, you would never, ever make any substantial amount of money. It's interesting. 
you know? Yeah. I think, um, I think what I've learned is, um, we need more Mr. Beasts in the NBA content <laughs> sphere. I, I would, uh, I'm curious, like it, it is always interesting. I find just like the ways of, um, you know, how different people get access to, you know, to their, their big platforms, because there are some, you know, I think like every year you kind of see around like the NBA finals and NBA playoffs and, and things like that, where you, where you do see, you know, more like content, content creators, so to speak, influencers or, or whatever you want to, um, you know, refer to people as is, is kind of getting access to, to, to players and things like that. And um, I think it, I think it's just important for, um, you know, networks to to learn and learn and adapt and, and you know, just, uh, yeah, like you said, like reward the people that that are good at, at what they do and, and recognize the need for um, you know, just like diversity of content and, and diversity of voices, because um, like it goes back to what we were saying earlier about just like trying to learn about everybody's different space in the, in the Raptors media scene, because I think you can have 15 different people that are, you know, watching the same game and working on 15 different pieces of content. Um, you know, whether, you know, you might be writing about, about Jacoberto's footwork or, or something. <laughs> and, then, and then there's a story about, um, you know, then there could be a story about, you know, Scotty Barnes as a high school friend at the game. And then you have a different story about something. And there's, there's always like so much to talk about and, and so much to, to work on. And I think it's, um, it's important that I think, you know, if there's any uh, major media executives listening to this to realize that, um, you know, there, there's value in content that, that isn't always just the, you know, direct, direct uh, result of an ad dollar, because it, I think it just brings a good, uh, a feel to the platform, you know, whatever platform you're on. And um, yeah, I think, I, I hope that, you know, that, all the people that the good people that I've come to know through, through, you know, my few years as a full-time media member have like, will be able to support themselves and, you know, support their, their dreams and, and livelihoods and things like that. So um, I think it's never a bad thing when there's, you know, investment in media. I just hope that it's, uh, you know, done with a way that recognizes, uh, you know, the people who are involved in it. It's definitely, it's interesting. And yeah, it, it seems like it's trending the way that many other things are trending. Um, and it isn't the last bastion of like labor. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there, there are more important things to do out there than what Adam and I do. And as he, as he stated, like, man, it, you know, there are people who would, I don't know if they'd be like impressed with the wage, probably not, but they'd be like, that sounds like a cool job. I'd like to do that. Um, the, the tough part of getting into this industry is, of course, that there is very little labor protection. It is, you know, like a, you, you do an internship in a lot of cases, you do free labor, or you do like pennies on the dollar labor, you just have to grind it out until you get a platform where maybe then you end up getting a living wage somewhere. All of this benefits the consumer immensely, because you just get like a sea of content. And but it's the way many things are, you can look at fast fashion, you can look at a ton of industries that things that are beneficial for the consumer are typically not as beneficial for the workforce. And yeah, I hope that there's a happy medium found. And I, and I also hope that, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, um, writers, talkers, those who are employed with living wages, those who aren't, um, do their best to tell honest stories of the, the men and women that they cover in, in sports and in you know the WNBA or the NBA. And they try and honor people's stories better than they have been. And not to say that, you know, the media is bad, not to say that all that kind of stuff, but certainly the media can strive to do better. And especially since consumers are driving media um, towards more vapid and superficial coverage, I think, because that's what gets clicks. Um, I hope that, and probably producers and like editors and that kind of stuff. I hope that, um, 
eventually we find like a harmonious spot where people care more about like the the more in-depth humanistic stuff rather than the stuff that trends the other way. Do you have any, do you have any parting shots for the listener, Adam? Parting shots. Uh, I'm impressed if, you know, people have made it this far to hear us, you know, riff about um, the morality of, of NBA media and, and things like that. Um, I, I'll tell you, I have conditioned at least a portion of this listener base to think that this is exactly how po- podcasts might go. And the retention rate, it's pretty good. So I think there'll be people. But um, yeah, I, th- I think one thing too is um, sometimes I see, I think like one thing I saw that, that really stuck out to me this, this off season was, you know, with the departure of like Fred Van Vliet, um, you know, he was a guy who, who was one of these stories that is like super interesting. Like, I think it's like, when, I don't know if you can rank all time NBA stories, but, but a guy who, you know, was, was undrafted, gets NBA finals, MVP votes, um, you know, was big, big part of a championship team, made his way to an all-star game, you know, made two major your contracts and and i think you would see people who were saying like uh you know on his way out people were saying like oh like you know thanks to fred for his time here uh, you know his media members and fans and, and people just found a need to be like oh you know why would you say that well, you know, what do you mean fred was was nice to the media why like why would you are you guys just like you know you're, you guys are too nice to each other and you weren't critical enough of him and, and and things like that and i think it's just like it's weird to to say that you know you, you can say oh Van Vliet had a bad game or, you know, had a bad stretch a few weeks. He wasn't shooting the ball well, but, but I think at the end of the day, you look at, you know, like a guy like Van Vliet and his time here, and it's okay to like say positive things about a player, even if, you know, the NBA is a complex sport and sure, you know, there'd be some games where you'd look and it'd be like, Oh, Van Vliet's shooting three of 17. That's not going to help the team win tonight. But, but I think it's okay to, to understand that, like, just because, uh, you know, you say nice things about a player, doesn't mean that you're like immune to, to say when they're, they're not, you know, performing well. And, and, you know, that's like part of the reason why we have box scores and, and, you know, part of the reason why it's important to contextualize what, what a player says after those types of games. And, and um, yeah, I think just like, it's, it's okay for like fans and fans and media and, and players to just like be on good terms in some sense and, and still recognize that. Yeah. You know, if, uh, if the Raptors are doing well, then Toronto media markets are probably doing well. And if, you know, if the Raptors aren't doing well, then less people are watching the games. And, and like, it's, it's okay to say that, like, you know, you've been working with somebody in some capacity for, for some amount of time and it's, it's been a positive relationship for the most part. And, um, I think it's just like, uh, you know, sometimes people just have this idea that, you know, it always has to be people pushing each other down. Um, when, when like you realize that some of the, you know, best, best voices in, you know, Raptors media or NBA media are, are created because they, you know, they built the platform through, you know, whether it was the Raptors going through their championship run or, you know, whether it was just covering any teams in, in big moments, you know, everybody kind of has their, their breakout moments. And it's okay for people to say like, oh, you know, this was a, this was a nice person. This was a nice guy. And um, it doesn't always have to be, a, you know, a negative, a negative relationship between media fans and players. I think um, people initially think that like, and this, this I don't disagree with. Um, if Darko happens to engage with my X's and O's like questions way better than Nick did, that is meaningful to me. But I also understand that people were like, keep asking Sam, like cheering me on when Nick would rebuff me. And I think like that's the natural, like some people view it as media has to be inherently antagonistic to the players. Like that is their their perception of the media. And if you're not inherently antagonistic, then you are complicit in what that player does or you're doing work to absolve them of blame or anything like that. 
But I don't think it's that binary. I had in that media room um, one of the least substantial relationships with Fred of many, many people there. I didn't talk to him with the 905. It was my first year on the beat. And, you know, like Lewis coming on the podcast and saying that he got to cover Fred with the 905 and like had good conversations and has covered him for years. Um, that's important to him. Like he got to tell cool stories, all that kind of stuff. Um, but even I, as somebody who has always been, I guess, um, like critical of Fred's game, never Fred the person, but critical of Fred's game. Even I found if I said anything good about Fred, despite never writing like a feature on him or never saying that I thought, you know, he was fantastic or anything like that, that I would be lumped in with the, you know, the media as like, why do you guys love Fred so much? All this kind of stuff. And so I don't think it's a, a personal thing. I think it's just a lack of like insight on that. Whoever is commenting on that, I think they're viewing the media as a whole when in reality, as you said, like on a given night, there's 15 different pieces or something coming out. Um, Doug Smith and I write different things. Doug Smith and you write different things. Um, Michael Grange and I uh, get along really well. We talk about like lots of stuff, but we don't write similar stuff. Um, there's a lot of diversity in media, even in approach to what they think the best way the Raptors should go forward is. As you know, it's a bunch of like basketball nerds having conversations about basketball in the media room. But yeah, there is um, a very, very healthy distaste for Toronto media right now in the fan base, which I find interesting. And um, well, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to fully understand. But yeah, especially since I just view them as like working class people. But hey, OK, any any final parting shots? Yeah, I, I would just uh, just a final response to that. I think that, uh, you know, it, it goes back to, it's a quote that you've heard from like, you know, Pascal Siakam, Masai Ujiri, uh, Van Vliet again. They always kind of say like, you know, winning fixes everything in a sense. And I think, you sure. know, when the when the Raptors are, are doing well, um, I think the media will be will be nicer to us. And I don't know at what point, or sorry, I mean, I think the fans will be nicer to the media, but I, I don't know at what point that's coming. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, people... Anybody who was around for that, you know, 2019 era of teams realized how, how fun those teams were to cover and, you know, how, how good the vibes were. And sometimes the vibes are a little bit off. But, um, you know, you hope that whatever comes forward with like this Raptors team in, in, in the next year and, you know, however, um, you know, Darko's relationship with the with the fans uh, forms and, you know, what kind of what kind of questions he gets asked. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how that all filters out. But like, I think it's it's still just, um, you know, a blessing to be able to to do this even with all the you know the problems that come with it i think it's a at the end of the day everybody in media tends to really enjoy their job and um i hope that you and i can uh, and you know everybody else that that works in basketball media in, in canada can can do their best to just kind of present uh you know a great sport to to whatever platform they're on and yeah the most important thing isn't that we're well liked it's that we do the best job to tell people's stories responsibly um, that's like, some of, some of this is just like, you know, it's, we don't want to be, have like negative responses to a bunch of the work we do. That of course is not super nice. I like when the Raptors are winning and people are much more receptive to my hyper-specific explanations of why what the Raptors do works rather than the hyper-specific explanations of what's going wrong. Um, but the most important thing, our job is media isn't to be like well liked it's um 
you know, to tell truthful stories of what's happening and for the people that we cover. And truthfully, given the stakes, to cover these people optimistically. I think that is what they deserve. Um, Adam, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, I hope to do it again next off season when, uh, you know, the world's in a different place. Hell yeah. The, the, the yearly check-in on the, the media for us to navel gaze a little bit and uh, consider. Oh, yeah. when, Go ahead. When Rogers and Bell, uh, you know, merge it or whatever they're going to do, or you know, <laughs> some, some massive media thing happens. And we realize that, you know, Raptors games are suddenly broadcast on Apple TV or something like that. Uh, there, we'll have a, another conversation about it a year from now. Yep. Rapidly changing landscape. One that deserves attention, not just from us kind of talking about it off the cuff, but for people to consider intensely in boardrooms and all that kind of stuff. We'll see how it goes. Adam, thank you. Listener, thank you. And whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.